Welcome to QAV episode 452, or as I like to call it, the last show of the year. And I'm doing it without Tony this week, kind of, because it's my annual best of 2021 show. This is my chance to give Tony the week off and uh, go back over the shows that we've done this year and, and read the transcripts and think to myself, what do I think the most important learnings were over the course of the year and try and do a bit of a compilation show. And there'll be bits and pieces of, you know, good stock recommendations and Tony's analysis on certain things. But for me, the probably the biggest learning this year was the way Tony taught me to use the commodity charts to get some advanced warning on when some of our, in particular this year, mining stocks, iron ore stocks, were probably going to retreat. And uh, to look at the three-point trend lines, uh, of the commodity price as opposed to the individual stock price. Because what I learned was the individual company prices tend to lag a little bit the commodity prices. So um, I'll sort of try to compile uh, the progression of Tony's thinking on that this year. And uh, it tells a bit of a story. And there'll be some other things as well, as I said, but th- that's the main thing. So I hope you enjoy this, uh, the last show uh, of QAV for 2021. Shall we do stock of the week? Sure. What's your stock of the week, Tony? So this is from episode 401, the very first episode of the year. And Tony's first uh, stock of the week was the... Tony. Commonwealth Bank of Australia. No. Yeah. No. Banks. Banks aren't <laughs> uh, very uh, Buffett friendly. Oh, yes, they are. Really? Oh, he, okay. um, Yeah. <laughs> thought he hated yeah. banks. <laughs> Wells Fargo, he's had, I think he loaned Wells, like 10% of Wells Fargo for a long time. Oh, okay. I think they might have sold it recently, though. I seem really? to recall because Wells Fargo had a bit of a uh, run in with the regulator over um, some kind of accounting scandal. Right. So yeah. why, no, why was, Commonwealth Bank, Tony? Bank. Commonwealth Bank, well, um, this, a lot of people did ask, have asked questions about the banks along the way this year because they've been in a general downtrend for a while and then. Uh, after their results came out mid-year, after the COVID cough, the numbers were pretty good and they were scoring well. They just didn't have sentiment. So ComBank has now just nudged above the byline. And I remember at the time during the year, I thought, gee, the numbers were really good from the banks coming out mid-year. And I, I, was in, I almost bought them without waiting for sentiment. And i kind of glad I didn't because they did go back into a second trough in September. But since that low point in September, ComBank has shot up. So it's now above its three-point trend line. Uh, and, I mean, all our listeners will be familiar with ComBank. It's the largest retail bank in Australia. It has its uh, history as a government-owned bank and was the last to privatise. And uh, I remember buying shares in the privatisation at five bucks. It was, I think, two or three tranches of privatisation. And, uh, yeah, the first ones went off at $5. I think the second ones were about 12 and now it's 85. So I didn't obviously haven't held them all the way through because they've been up and down. But uh, yes, ComBank is back into the buy list. I think its QAV score was around 0.12, 0.13. So it's not near the top. Uh, but again, it's, uh, it's interesting and people might want to consider this, but we've had a couple of biggish companies come onto the buy list at the bottom end of it. And I'm thinking of JB Hi-Fi in, in particular was another one. ComBank, and they don't stay on for long because they their price keeps going up, and the QAV score at the moment is 0.13, and uh, you know it won't take much of a rise in the share price for that to drop below 0.1. So if people are you know inclined to to want to skew their portfolios more towards blue chip or to or they're, they're a bit like me and need to buy bigger companies, then they might want to have a look at ComBank in the next week or so. So it, when it bottomed out for the second time after the COVID cough, so it dropped down to 57.41 in March, mm-hmm. came back up to 73, then dropped back down to 63 late September, and then is up to 85 today. Yeah. So it's had, yeah. had a ton of growth, like 40%. Yeah. and it's cool. one of the things that's been driving the ASX up has been banks uh, improving in the last few months as well because they, right. they're quite large in terms of market cap and, and can steer the ASX quite quickly. I'm just going to have a look at its um, dividend yield too because that's another reason that people have been buying banks. 
and uh, dividend yield, oh, it's dropped down at 3.48 at the moment because of the share price rise, but it has been around the 5% mark um, over the last 12 months. So you're getting a, a reasonable deal, uh, dividend out of it too, especially if you, you're, borrow, you're buying with borrowed funds, that might be a consideration for you. Mm. So it's not high on our buy list, nope. but if you're looking for a big blue chip that checks out, passes our uh, metrics and gets a positive score, that's one to think of. Yeah, and like I say, if it keeps going up, it won't stay on the buy list for too much longer. Well, as I said in that little clip there, and I apologise for the poor audio quality, I think Tony was down at Cape Shank and using a dodgy uh, Apple headset at the time. By the way, I'm recording this in a co-working space in Bundaberg. I'm supposed to be on holidays today, but uh, had to get this out for you. Got to get the buy list out today, etc. At the time we recorded that, as, as I said, Commonwealth Bank was trading about $85. And here at the end of the year when I'm recording this, it's around about 100 bucks. So uh, a little bit close to, it was up about 103 the other day. It's about 20% growth for the year. Not bad, particularly coming from a blue chip stock like that. Actually, its all-time high was $110, which it hit in November 2021. So good start to the year for Tony's stock tips, uh, calling out the Commonwealth Bank. Then we get into a discussion based on a listener question about whether or not you're going to get better returns overall, on average, long-term, by investing in small caps or large caps? Fairly common question that we get, so I thought it was worthwhile repeating Tony's answer to that one. All right, well, now we've got a question from Jamie. He might have asked you this at dinner. I don't know. Has Tony ever tracked relative QAV performance of large versus mid versus small cap companies? I remember Elio D'Amato saying he was more focused on the smaller end of the market for larger gains. I've also noticed some of the other members' results are 40% or more, perhaps due to market timing or asset allocation mix. Jamie. Yeah, I'll take that last point first. I'm pretty sure the people who are getting 40% uh, are either, well, I think uh, the ones I spoke to on the weekend are probably investing since the COVID cough when the market did rebound strongly and where our stocks have rebounded strongly. Uh, So I think that's probably due to that. But um, I think there was also a couple of people who had just sort of picked a couple of the shares uh, and didn't have a full portfolio yet and, and they were pleased with Capital Aluminium and C6C and things like that. So, um, yeah, so Jamie, I wouldn't get too caught up on not getting 40% over the last calendar year if you were invested all year. Uh, I think there are some reasons for that. And and I should make the point too to people who have got those kinds of returns, don't get carried away with a 40% return. It's great, but uh, it's not likely you'll get another 40% return this year. So, don't be discouraged if it's you know another fifteen percent year, um, or, yeah, or it could be it could be another really good year, or it could even be negative. So you just you just don't know. So <laughs> I have to stop and have a chuckle at that because of course many of us, particularly in the last few months, have had really bad returns as the markets uh, sort of tanked for the last couple of months over Omicron and supply chain issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, yeah, there you go. Tony told us at the beginning of the year, you don't expect you'll always have good years there are good years and there are bad years even with QAV uh, that's going to happen because there's so many things beyond our control even as investors obviously we're trying to use the science behind QAV to minimize our losses and maximize our successes but uh, sometimes the market plays against us we just need to wait it out and uh, play for the long term short-term results are a great fun to talk about over a beer but uh, you know I wouldn't let them motivate me one way or the other until you get uh, fully invested over a period of time. So there's that. But getting back to uh, Jamie's question about small caps versus large caps, my experience is they do about the same. I'm not sure. I understand Elio's point. And and the point is simply this, that if you if you get on board with a, a Fortescue Metals group when it's a very small miner starting out, or if you get on board with a Tesla when it's starting out, or Zero or Apple, or any of those companies that have gone on to bigger and better things, you're getting a really large return as opposed to buying them late in the day when you might double or triple your money as opposed to getting you know 50 to 100 times your money. But I think that's hindsight bias. I think there's as, there's as many small companies going broke as there are ones shooting the lights out. So I actually jumped onto the ASX website this morning to do some research and you can do this yourself. Uh, I looked at um, the ASX 20 performance over the last five years and the last 10 years. The ASX Small Lords, which are those companies outside the top 500 for those two same periods, 
and the ASX uh, uh, All Awards, which is the top 500 companies. So uh, kind of, you know, big ones, most of them, and then uh, the, the, the tiddlers. And the, the small awards, the, those below the top 500, and there's, you know, 16 or 1,700 of those companies on the ASX. They outperformed in the last five years, but they underperformed in the last 10 years. So just to run through some numbers, the ASX 20, so the biggest 20 stocks for the last five years, returned 4.77%, but the small ordinaries returned 8.6%. But over 10 years, that was reversed and the ASX 20 returned 2.98. And over 10 years, the small ordinaries returned less than 1%. So it's, that, that kind of matches my experience where sometimes one outperforms and sometimes the other doesn't. And I'm guessing that that the small lords would do well in a rebounding market because, you know, there's a lot of wind behind the sales of those tech stocks at the moment, the, the high value growth stocks. Uh, but that doesn't always last. And generally, you know, as we've probably seen during this year as well, uh, when when we start to think about recessions, a lot of the market gravitates back to the, the um, you know, the retailers and the blue chip miners and things like that. So uh, it does, it, it swings in roundabouts. And, and to summarize, Jamie, I don't think it matters whether you're in big or small I know Buffett's always said it makes gets harder to make money when you've got you know billions of dollars invested, but I don't think uh, I'm anywhere, I'm not anywhere near that. I don't think any of our listeners are at the moment. So, although one of our listeners started up a brewery which he sold to um, Foster's, <laughs> which started his investing career, so he's probably got a bit of cash to invest. I'm sure that uh, you know it's it's uh, the size of his investments is still not a drag on on portfolio performance. So what you're saying, Tony, is it's not how big it is that matters; it's what you do with it. <laughs> well, yes, that's right. It's which one you buy. It's which one you meet up with. <laughs> right. Which one you take home? Oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's been my experience. It's uh, it all comes down to technique at the end of the day. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> hmm. Investing technique, methodology, of course, yeah. what I'm talking about. Another common question that we get, particularly from new QAV subscribers, is about rebalancing. Pretty much every other investing guru you read or listen to out there is going to talk about the importance of rebalancing. And as long-term listeners will know, Tony is not a big fan. Yeah, and look, right. sometimes they do make sense. You've got to use common sense here. Um, you know, it goes both ways. Like I said, back in... When we're talking about Commonwealth Bank back in the middle of the last year, uh, the numbers came out and they scored really well on the QAV numbers, but the sentiment wasn't there. And I wondered whether I should fudge it or not. And it went up and then it went down again. So uh, I'm not going to fudge. If I make some, if I do, if I make some fudge, it'll be the exception. It won't be the rule. Um, I'm going to stick to the rules normally. Well, you know what they say, Tony. What they say, Cam. <laughs> Once you fudge, <laughs> you'll never budge. Never go back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fudge slope. Um, another one from Jamie. Hi, Cam. Uh, can't recall if we've discussed this before in any show in any detail. Should we rebalance every so often, e.g. six monthly? Uh, no, Jamie, we should no. I think that's the answer to that question. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote no exclamation mark on my notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have, we have talked about that before, particularly when we've had guests come on who do that yep. kind of thing. You um, you don't agree with rebalancing. No, I don't. And Buffett doesn't either. And his great quote is, why would you trade Michael Jordan? And that's what you're doing. Why would you, why would you sell your best performing stock just because it's gotten a bit big in your portfolio? It makes no sense to me. And, and think, well, about, think I, about the logic. I mean, look at Fortis New Metals Group, right? How many times have people ask questions about, is it time to sell yet? Should we take some profit? Should we rebalance? And we haven't, and it's you know a three. It's now over a three bagger for us. So I think you, I think that I think rebalancing actually hurts your performance. If I didn't have the three point trend line to give me some comfort of knowing when to get out of a stock that's gone up, then I might. But you know, I'll just wait for this few metals to start to turn down, and then um, we've got you know sell lines in place to deal with it and a process. Yeah, to deal I mean, with I, it. I guess the rationale is people are thinking well. You know, in terms of its rate of growth, it's mm-hmm. grown so much, it's probably slowing down. And you could take the, that capital and put it into something that has just started its uh, growth. But if I look at, if I take Fortescue as an example, so we bought it around 7.55, right? So by the time it hit 15 and it had done 100% growth, which was 
July 2020. If we'd sold there, <laughs> we would have missed out on exactly. another 100% of growth, right? So, yeah. uh, well, another Nearly. 100% from there. It's so 25. So it's gone up. Yeah. What's that? 15 to 25. Six, is, uh, yeah. Right. Which is not as good. Yeah, you know, we've had C6C, which is up 100% in the last couple of months. If we'd sold Fortescue and put it in C6C, we would have done better than just leaving it in FMG. But of course, we had no idea really no. that C6C was going to perform Correct. that well. Now we're, now we're using hindsight bias to second guess ourselves, which is one of the things we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You start to play that game, you start buying afterpay. Yeah, and Bitcoin. Yeah, Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> By the way, is Taylor still talking to me after I talked him out of oh. buying Bitcoin last year? <laughs> no, no, he brought it up again the other day. It's like 35,000. You talked to him, it was like 7,500 yeah. when we talked him out of buying it. It's now 35,000. <laughs> <laughs> I said, to be fair, Tony never said don't buy it. Yep. He said, yeah, it's your money. Do what you want. I wouldn't buy it, but if you want to buy it, buy it, you know. Yeah, and, and He's the, like, the question oh. I asked Taylor was when you get out. So, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, that's – Could crash all the way yeah. back down to 10,000 again pretty quickly too. <laughs> and, of course, at the time of recording this – Bitcoin is actually at about 66,000. So Taylor would have uh, nearly done 10, uh, made 10 times his money if he had invested when it was around seven. But again, it's a good story. Like Bitcoin went up to 80,000 during the year, dropped down to 45,000, went back up to 88,000. Now, as I said, it's around about 66,000. But when do you know when to buy and, and when to sell, when to get out? Well, what about the people who bought it uh, around about the 10th of November this year when it was at 89,000 and it's currently, you know, lost, I don't know, 20%? How are they feeling? Will it go back up above that? Yeah, quite possibly. Who knows? Afterpay, of course, was another classic one this year. Uh, has had an interesting run. Currently trading about uh, eighty-five bucks. It was up at around about one hundred and sixty bucks uh, on the tenth of February, twenty twenty-one. Not long after we recorded this episode, these, these all these clips so far from episode one, four hundred one, from this year. By the way, it got up as high as one hundred and sixty, dropped down to eighty-four. Went back up to 134 and is currently back down around 84, 85 bucks. So again, if you were the people that bought it on the 9th or 10th of February when it was trading around 155 bucks and you didn't uh, have a three-point sell line, you've lost, I don't know, nearly half your money on it. Uh, and of course, back in February, everyone was still saying it was going to go to the moon. Uh, they were going to launch in the US and they end up getting acquired by Square, as we all know. But uh, so, you know, you can make a lot of money out of these things, but you've got to have some disciplines in place, I guess, and uh, balls of steel to ride those, uh, those waves. Well, still in episode one, more talk about FMG. And uh, as you'll see in this section, Tony wasn't talking about the fudged sell line for iron ore, the commodity price at this stage. Again, this is back at the beginning of January 2021. At the time, FMG was trading around about $25. And I think it's really interesting to watch the evolution of Tony's thinking about commodity prices over the course of the year. Um, so there's a lot of questions about for the Skew Metals Group and uh, along the lines of, you know, the current sell price is, I think, around $7, $7.50, and it will take numbers a number of years to wait, you know, potentially for a sell to occur. And, yeah, all that's true. I, I think that's a good problem to have. I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that we hold on to Fortescue Metals Group for a very long time. You know, decades would be great. There's all sorts of, there's always all sorts of worries around holding a share that's going up like this. And it's, I'm not saying it won't come down in the next 12 months. It, you know, it depends on what happens with the Fortescue's iron ore competitors, particularly Valet and Brazil. It depends what's happening on in China and whether they keep buying Australian products and all sorts of things. So lots can go wrong, but most of the commentary tends to focus on what can go wrong. But flip it over, and like I say, we should always invert a problem. What if this is the start of a big run? What if Fortescue Metals Group is the next BHP and it becomes a cornerstone of every portfolio 
for every superannuation investor for the next 50 years. You have to trust people like Twiggy Forrest. He's made a good go of it so far. He's not going to sit idle and let the share price you know, drop back to seven bucks in a hurry, although it might be out of his control. But they're obviously doing a lot of things to, to mitigate for any sort of um, eventualities that might occur with these problems, like bringing on more iron ore mines, diversifying into other commodities. All those kinds of things are on the on the either happening or on the, the planning boards for Fortescue Metals Group. So, you know, the, yep, the share price might come down, but it might also continue to go up. And uh, we just don't know. And that's why we have the three-point trend line. And then um, Jamie goes into a whole heap of questions about whether we should be taking shorter term periods to graph the trend lines like three years rather than five years or um, – I think, as uh, Eddie Donato said in the past, just take the recent uptrend as a trend line and sell when it drops black below that. They're all valid questions. And if you want to try it, go out and do it and come back and tell us your results. And if it's if it's better, then I'll change my mind. But what will happen, I think, and who knows, is that the, the low point for Fortescue Metals is, is over at the left-hand part of the graph at the moment. And as the graph chugs to the right, in other words, as, as we march through the months, the sell price will, will change and uh, the low point will become somewhere towards the middle of the graph currently and that will set a new low price and as that chugs across and it might take two or three years then we'll start to have a sell line which tracks more the latest upward trend rather than the overall five-year upward trend of the stock so yeah so we might we might find it in three years time that you know the sell price is going to be more like its current share price now and we'll be selling but uh, i'm not going to rush this because it's like it's such a precious thing to have found a stock like this why would you want to sell it quickly and also just last comment on on the kinds of discussions that Jamie's put into his um, email, which is uh, quite detailed, is that he's starting to get into um, discussions around technical analysis or charting as it's um, it's sometimes called. And I've never, I've looked into charting and read the books and even when I first started out, subscribed to people who were stock chartists and to see what they were doing. And I've never found it a satisfactory way of investing. It always seems to have fudges and exceptions and uh, no real science behind it because even though um, I, I like the three-point trend lines as a rough guide to sentiment, that's about as far as involved as I get because when you start getting into moving averages and SD maxes and anything else that chartists talk about, triple heads and shoulders and all that kind of stuff, I, I my experience is your portfolio gets much more volatile than it currently is. And, and ours has been volatile enough, especially in the first year while we're setting up and we buy something and it turns back and we sell it again quickly. So to go through that process again by selling Fortescue metals and buying something else which might go up and then go down again quickly is, is not something that I find palatable. And I, don't, I can't think of any chartists any billionaires, any billionaires out there who have made money out of charting. And so um, it took me a long time to, to accept the three-point trend line as being a good risk mitigator, as I said before, um, which I needed because I didn't want to go through a GFC event again where, where your portfolio turns down, even though the metrics look good, um, the sentiment goes against you. So um, I'm happy to, to tip my toe in the water for charting as far as a three-point trend line goes, but that's as far as I'm prepared to go. And uh, if, if Jamie and others want to have a look at it and come back to us, that's great, but it's not for me. All righty then. Good questions though, Jamie. Yeah, I agree. They are good questions. And these you know, these are just the thoughts I had at certain stages in my past when I was working all this out. And uh, the only way you can answer it really is to, is to test it. And every time yeah. I've dabbled in this kind of stuff of trying to draw shorter-term trend lines, uh, I get suckered and the portfolio becomes more volatile and the you know the best performer gets away. Right. As you said before, like if, if you take that 40% growth or whatever it is that FMG has had in the last year, you know, not many of the stocks in our portfolio have been better than that. There's a few. Yeah. Maybe, you know, Perseus, Santos, um, Corvest, obviously Copper Mountain, mm-hmm. but um, oh, mineral commodities, MRC, maybe. And what if we sold Fortescue so maybe, and bought Hawthorne? Yeah, right. So maybe a third of our portfolio has performed better than FMG has in the last year. The other two thirds hasn't. So yeah, if we'd sold that, we you know we may have bought something that underperformed. Yeah. What it's already done. Exactly. How do you know? Yeah. And as it mm. turns out, that would have been a two to one ratio. The chances of buying something that underperformed would have been two to one. So, not a good bet. Yeah. A couple of weeks later in episode 403, Tony started talking again about 
tracking commodity prices. I was reading another article uh, on lo- on Eureka Report from a guy, Tim Treadgold's funny name for a, an analyst in the mining sector, but he's very good. And he went through talking about the fact that he thought coal was um, in an upturn. So I went on to Index Mundi and had a look, and yes, it looks like coal's just starting its three-point upturn. Uh, so I decided to go back into the QAV master spreadsheet and have a look at all of the companies in the classifications for energy and materials, which is uh, one of the early columns in the QA, column C in the, in the um, QAV master spreadsheet. And, and if people aren't aware of what, the, what that means is uh, the ASX has uh, grouped companies into industry classifications to, to allow people to analyze a particular industry quickly, whether it's financial, retail, uh, materials, which often means things like coal um, or energy, and and so uh, because I haven't, I, I don't go back every download and check every three point sentiment on the watch list because there are you know a couple of hundred shares on the watch list, whatever the number is, it's a lot. I tend to look for catalysts or sentiment changes or interesting articles that make me go and have a look. So in this case, I went and had a look at those companies on the watch list that were in the material sector, which would cover coal, and uh, the energy sector, uh, because he also spoke about um, some uh, changes to oil as well, I think, in the article. But anyway, I came up with a whole host of companies that had gone through three-point trend changes since I last looked at them. King Rose Mining, is I'll probably make that my stock of the week, KRM. So I think it, it has been on our buy list in the past, but it's, um, it, it fell off again. And it may it may do again because it's, it's you know sort of bouncing along the bottom of its um, share price graph, but it has had a recent upturn. It has a QAV score of, of 0.58, so quite high. So that's King Rose Mining. It, it owns uh, gold and silver mines in Indonesia. So there is a bit of sovereign risk there, but um, uh, it's certainly on its way back. Uh, it's a, it's a, a small, I think the, the share price is only about 3.8 cents. So it's a, uh, I don't think it's a necessarily a small company, but certainly the share price is in the sense. Well, as Tony said, KRM at the time was trading around about 5 cents. It's currently at the end of the year about 8 cents, so 60% up. So that was another good call. I hope some of you got in on that at the beginning of the year. So for new listeners, this is something we've talked about before and we've we've added some stocks before a few months ago based on you noticing that uh, some of these resources pricing have been ticking up. Last year it happened with nickel um, and it happened with iron ore and it happened with, or maybe iron ore was the year before, and it's um, happened most recently with copper, and we we seem to get good results out of that kind of turn in sentiment, which makes sense. I mean, these are all companies which trade these things, and the price is going up, so you expect their sales to go up. And as we know, with the miners um, in the industry, uh, once the price goes above their cost cost base, their growth profit increases dramatically as the commodity price goes up, because uh, it just uh, all those extra uh, all that extra income just drops to the bottom line once they've covered their costs. So um, yeah, I think that's a without wanting to be a commodities trader, it's um, it's uh, certainly been a driver of some good results within the, the companies that mine in those um, in those areas. But of course, up until this point, we've been talking about how to take advantage of noticing that commodity prices are going up and jumping on the the stocks that stand to benefit from that. What we haven't talked about is what we do when those commodity prices turn around. Even a few months later, in June, uh, episode 420, we got a question about the fact that iron ore prices were still at record highs, but the iron ore miner share prices were starting to go down, and Tony was asked why. Elmar! This is interesting. Iron ore prices are at an all-time high, $200 a tonne. And yet all the iron ore producers' shares are going down. Am I missing something? I don't think he's missing anything. I mean, there's a whole whole heap of things going on with iron ore at the moment. Not, and, and this question is probably a week or so late now because I think the iron ore companies have had a bit of an upsurge in the last couple of days as, as iron ore has continued on to about $230 a tonne. Right. Now, not 200, so it's still going up. Um, but I, I take the wider question. People are trying to predict, they're trying to second guess what's going on. Um, obviously, iron ore and copper and all these commodities are going to regress to the mean at some stage. The tricky part is knowing when it happens or predicting when it's going to happen. So we just wait for it to start to happen and then we get out. Yeah. And um, 
that's what that was. What the last question was about: Are we going to use the th- if we use the five-year three-point trend line? It might be too late. Yeah, which I fully accept. So we might use a shorter period to, to get out with these stocks. But there are other things that are happening. I mean, the the some people, some analysts are saying that the recent hike up in iron ore prices is because China has clamped down on pollution and steel mills, and therefore the steel mill operators are trying to buy iron ore quickly before they get shut out of the market. And that's created a bit of a surge in demand so that some analysts are suspecting that the price might drop a little bit. People are looking longer term to when South America comes out of COVID and Vale, which is the other big competitor for our iron ore, comes back online. Um, They're also looking even further afield to when um, the Chinese investments in iron ore mines in Africa can be a thing and start producing. So there's there's definitely reasons on the horizon to say that iron ore probably won't keep going up, but you know predicting is a, a fool's game. We'll just write it out and see. And in term, the other point to make about Fortescue Metals in particular, I had a look at it today, and, and Elmer might want to do this too. You can in Stock Doctor at least you can call up the FMG graph and then put iron ore as a commodity overlaid against it. And what you'll notice is that those two graphs were in sync up until this most recent sort of leg up in Fortescue Metals. And now Fortescue Metals is is still going in the same direction as iron ore, but doesn't track it as closely as it has in the past. And that's, I guess, sort of one sign that there might be a correction coming in the future. So when you see the sort of underlying commodity going up at sort of, you know, I don't know what it is, 20 degrees on the graph, and then Fortescue Metals is going up at 30 degrees, kind of detaches from the reality of the underlying commodity growth and there's reasons for that it's a well-managed company it's paying a big dividend all those kinds of things but i expect that once the iron ore price does start to turn down fortescue might drop faster than the iron ore price so we just have to be vigilant on that one right I noticed that. And that could be another reason why it's it's had a few corrections in the last couple of weeks. I noticed Fortescue is nearly back to its all time high, though, right now. All time high is 2419. Yeah. It's at 2357 today. It dropped down to a 20 uh, a month or so ago, but it's shooting back up. Mm hmm. Good for us. Yeah, and that's the exact. The other thing about Fortescue that if you look at the graph, it, like every six months around result time, it has a little dip. Um, whether that's because you know people are trying to well they're trying to sell before the results come out in case there's bad news and they'll buy back in afterwards, or they are holding it for the dividend and they'll they'll sell it around dividend time. I don't know, but it tends to be a sort of familiar pattern with Fortescue. Right. So I had that little dip after the last results. In episode 422, just a couple of weeks later, I mentioned that I had been at the ASA annual conference and heard Elizabeth Gaines, who at the time was the CEO of Fortescue, talking where she gave her thoughts on what was going to happen to iron ore prices. Uh, Elizabeth Gaines, the CEO of FMG, said that she thinks uh, iron ore prices are going to stay strong for a while. And and the thing I was going to tell you before is, let me just find my notes from this. The other interesting thing I got out of her talk was she said China produced 98 million tonnes of steel last month. The second largest producers of steel in the world is either Japan or India, depending on the month. And they produce about 100 million tonnes a year. So she was just putting China in Ooh. perspective for how much steel it's producing at the moment. Right. Uh, 12 times, yeah. Stephen Mab got up and asked her a really great question in the Q&A about uh, uh, the Australia-China relationship and the potential impact of that, and she very artfully talked around it like a really good politician and didn't really answer it. So uh, I was impressed with her ability to just uh, not answer a question. That was clever. But despite Elizabeth's uh, predictions, by episode 432 in August, Tony said that he was going to start selling FMG. Do you want to talk about more of these stocks? What's going on with the others? I do because we've still got iron ore to talk about. There's been a few questions coming in about it. And again, I'm going to suggest that I'm going to sell my iron ore stocks and I, I own Fortescue Metals Group, which is my biggest portfolio position. And I own Champion Iron, which is a big position for me as well. So I've got to figure out how to do this without crunching the price. And uh, I'll probably do it as a dollar cost average over a few days for those stocks. And then try and find something else to buy that I don't already own and isn't iron ore stocks because obviously the next one 
next big stock that I don't own on the, on the top scorers list is, is Rio Tinto, which is another iron ore stock. So I don't want to um, expose myself to that. Okay, so so what's my feelings about iron ore? Let's have a look at that commodity graph. Stock Doctor Iron Ore, and the iron ore price has risen a little bit overnight. Click on commodities first, and then you get iron ore, and then click on advanced charting. I'm using TR Hash, which is iron ore, 62% pure, 62% iron, CFR China, TSI it's called. So three-point trend line sell for iron ore is, is again much lower than the current price. So the current price is $172, I think that's per tonne. Ton. The current three-point sell price is 78 bucks. If I draw a line using our, our three-point trend line algorithm, that's a big fall if we want to wait until the iron ore gets to, to that price. Um, so again, I'm looking at a fudge line, uh, starting with a low point of April 2020, and then drawing a line up there, which touches... Uh, November 2020, and then the current share price graph has just crossed beneath that sell line. Now, my reason behind doing that, Cam, is that again, a bit like oil, um, since the COVID cough, when the share when the iron ore price was 83 bucks per ton, it got up as high as well on the monthly basis 214 dollars, but I know intermonth intramonth it got up to being 240 dollars. So again, the um, the price has tripled, and in the last month it's dropped from 211 back to 172. So quite a big drop. Now what's what's behind that? And again, this is um, I guess provided for context rather than for prediction. And there's a whole heap of issues here. So China is is trying to talk the price of iron ore down. It's called jawboning. So and they don't like paying record prices for iron ore and they particularly don't like doing it because it's an Australian resource which they're which they're buying and there are you know political issues around the relationship between Australia and China at the moment. They've been so China the Chinese Communist Party has been saying things like, well we want to get our COVID our uh, sorry our COVID our climate change numbers down. And so we're going to put a clamp on iron ore production for a while, or steel production for a while, sorry. And so that has people are forecasting what that might mean and that, that's depressed the the predictive volume and then therefore the price of iron ore. However, in the in the background of that is the fact that the Biden infrastructure uh, bill is being passed in the US Senate. That will probably go ahead and that'll be you know, a lot of money being put into steel production in the US to build things. And on top of that, Vale, which is the big competitor for BHP, Rio and Fortescue Metals Group is having more and more problems with its iron ore mines and uh, shipping from Brazil. So there's no sort of uh, no sort of volume coming into the market, at least in the short term, which will get the the, um, the price down through natural supply and demand from the demand side. So um, it's possible that uh, if, if China is just jawbone to get the price down, the price will rise from here. Uh, so you know, I'd, I'd probably want to watch it for a few days and see what it does, but it has crossed over a fudge line sell at the moment. On top of all that, what other sort of important things are there to consider? <laughs> the next results from Fortescue Metals Group are probably going to be really good. I'll, I'll pick FMG as being the biggest iron ore stock in our portfolio. And you can see that if you go into Stock Doctor, you can have a look at what the forecast operating cash flow is going to be. So if you go into Stock Doctor for Fortescue Metals Group and then go into the financial metrics and go into the uh, the uh, yeah, financial metrics tab, sorry. You can see about the third line down under the subheading solvency, the uh, December 20 number was $3.43 a share for operating cash flow. The projected June 21 number is $5.19. You'd expect there to be a big increase in the uh, operating cash flow. And that's a projection, that's a consensus number. But given the fact that we've had our last quarterly report from Fortescue and we're days, if not maybe a week or so away from their, their results, it's it's probably a pretty safe bet. Um, they might, Fortescue may come in and surprise on the upside. I, I wouldn't expect them to surprise on the downside. If you plug that number into the uh, the checklist, then FMG is going to improve in terms of its um, its QAV number. It's currently uh, my checklist uh, has a QAV score of sixteen point one six, and you know, given that the operating cash flow is going to go up by about thirty percent, that's probably going to be in the twenties, in the point twos after we get the new numbers. Now, isn't that a good thing? You might say, well, it is, except that it's that that number, and particularly particularly for for commodity based stocks for miners, is that number's the rearview mirror. That's saying to me they've had a good 
12 months. It's not necessarily saying they'll have a good 12 months going forward or as good a 12 months going forward. And again, this is prediction, but if you have a look at the June 22 forecast, it's for a lower number of 481, still higher than where we are now, but $4.81 of operating cash. So there's all sorts of numbers being used as assumptions in those forecasts. So I treat the June 22 number with a grain of salt, but it is hard to see how in two years time, the iron ore price is going to get to a record high again. You would need to have full-on steel production around the world, which is what people have predicted when we come out of COVID. You would need to have the competitors like Vale still having problems um, getting any sort of you know big demand into the market to, to bring the price down. Both of those two things, yeah, I don't want to forecast, both of those two things though are potentially hard to see happening. So anyway, I think the iron ore prices are watch at the moment. And I think if it goes anywhere lower, then uh, the iron ore stocks are a sell for the SKU and CIA. And if you look at the Fortescue share price, it's already down from $25 odd dollars to $22.74 today. So that the iron ore price is having an effect. And if you look at uh, Champion Iron, CIA, which is another one that's um, that I own, I think it's isn't it I think it's in the dummy portfolio. You might know Cam. Is CIA in the dummy portfolio? I can look it up, I guess. Uh, no, it's not. It's not okay, so it's just me then. Uh, but that champion iron's down four percent today, uh, and it's, it's dropping fast as well. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm putting it on notice. I'm going to start lightening out of these um, companies. I probably won't sell all at once unless the, I wake up tomorrow and find out the iron ore price has dropped down again. Uh, my gut feel is that it's not going to go much lower, but I, my gut feel is also it's not going to go much higher. So we're going to sit here for a while. Um, and again, you know, this is a this is a situation where we've made such great money out of FMG um, that it's taking some profits off the, off the table as well. And the same with Champion Iron. What are we giving up? Well, there's a big dividend coming from Fortescue Metals in, uh, what, five weeks' time? I think it's mid-December, mid-September that it comes in. Ex-dividend for FMG is 10th of September, so 32 days away. So you need to hold the stock on the 10th of September in order to get that dividend. Correct. But I, but that dividend, um, currently the shares are trading on a 10.7% yield. So, you know, I, I expect as soon as it goes ex-dividend, the share price will take another leg down by a couple of bucks. So that's an issue too, although, I mean, over time it recovers. Mm. And that might be a buying opportunity if, if we see that, that after selling it, we want to buy it back. But um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, so yeah, again, I'm, I'm using a fudge line for the commodity price and I'm going to start selling, especially if it drops further. And as we know, that was a pretty good prediction. Uh, So when we were recording that episode, August, Tony said FMG was trading about 22 bucks. Uh, By October, it was down to 14 bucks. Uh, And now, as of today, the end of the year, it's back up around uh, 19 bucks. So it's on its way back and... uh, we uh, well, I bought it again for my portfolio when Tony decided that iron ore, the commodity price, had become a buy again. It, it got down as low as about uh, I don't have my glasses on. I think that's uh, ninety-seven dollars. Yeah, ninety-seven dollars, and uh, then it bounced back up. So it's currently at around about. I'm looking at TR hash here. It's around about one hundred and thirteen. Dollars, hundred and twelve, hundred and thirteen dollars. Um, so that's you know from a top of two fifteen where it was. So uh, not back to where it was, and whether or not it gets back up there, uh, we don't know. But uh, again, we just play the numbers, play the chart, play the fundamentals here. It turned around, started to go back up. Tony decided to ditch the fudge sell line, which we used on the way down and revert back to the actual sell line, which is uh, a lot lower. And to determine that it was now buy again. And sort of keeping with uh, talking about FMG, a few uh, few weeks later, episode 444, early November, we got a great question from Alice about sort of what our major learnings have been uh, to make us become better investors. And uh, Tony talked about how he struggled to sell FMG and some of the reasons why, which I thought was very interesting, along with the rest of his answer to this question, probably worth having another listen to. All right, last question, short show this week, so you can get on the road. Uh, Alice. <laughs> 
says, I enjoyed the chat with Louise, especially on the behavioral aspects of investing and trading. It would be great to hear both of your experiences. Did you need to make any behavioral shifts to become a better investor? Very much so, yes. Really? <laughs> well, yeah, if you, I've told the story before, but, you know, my first year as an investor, which I call my Bachelor of Investing, uh, was just abysmal. I did everything wrong, took stock tips from brokers, uh, listened to the uh, exploration guys at Shell and what was a hot two-cent oil explorer tip, all that kind of stuff. Got some good investment advice and poo-pooed it because it was so uh, mundane. You know, we were a bit like Taylor. We don't want just 20% per year. Come on, we want, uh, we want double our money, triple our money you know some of our mates were getting 10 times their money you know from internet stocks and all that kind of stuff so yeah I had to change my tune after I lost um, half my capital in that first year so that was a behavioral change and it, it became you know let's do the research let's read everything I can let's try and get a framework to a process to use going forward so that was probably the first thing that the GFC was you know my high degree in education so that's when I started to think well buy and hold for me was dead after the GFC I didn't you you know, I didn't want to buy and hold and people who did buy and hold, it took them a long time if you're like an index investor to get back to where the ASX index was anyway after the GFC. I think it was something like eight or nine years. Uh, so you were a long time in the wilderness trying to make up ground doing that. And that's when I started the three-point trend line, uh, inc well, incorporated three-point trend lines into my checklist. So that was another behavioral change because before that, I was a classic, you know, follow what Buffett does, which is to buy something and hold it forever. And that two things happened to sort of sway me from doing that one was the GFC but another one was you know someone pointed out to me and I forget who it was that if you look at the ASX over a hundred years I don't think any of the companies that were there in the past are still there now over a shorter time frame like 50 years or maybe BHP would be the only one that's still there and certainly some companies have evolved like Meyer was there and it became Coles Meyer and things like that but the point that they were making is that companies have a life cycle and uh, you know this decade's heroes aren't going to be there next decade um, so buying and hold can and have a limited shelf life. Um, so so that, that was a behavioral change for me, I guess, to looking more at um, investing and then looking for signals to, to when to buy and sell. And, you know, classically buying and holding is, is what behavioral economists call anchoring. So, you know, if I if I had have anchored my buying of Fortescue metals, I, you know, would have watched the share price drop from $25 back to 14 And it may get back up to $25, but what you lose in doing that is the opportunity cost of taking, of getting out and using that larger portion of capital capital to invest in something that's going up and not waiting for it to come back. So that, that was a, a learning for me is not to anchor. And it was actually really hard for me to sell my Fortescue stock when um, I decided it was time to sell because it was a week or two before a very large dividend was being paid. And, you know, there's probably a bit of anchoring going on. This has been a great stock for me over the years. Am I going to ride it out or not? And luckily, I followed the process and, and got out. So that was another thing that um, the, in terms of behavioral changes, it was to follow the process, not try and second guess the process so yeah really good question I think some other things that I can think of it's um, I'll call it I don't know if this is actually a feature of behavioral economics but I'll call it being comfortable with surprises so it's often a surprise to me that you know the next stock I'm going to buy is the highest on the buy list I'm like I sort of sometimes scratch my head and say you know why are the banks scoring so well on our buy list I mean surely every super fund in Australia owns Commonwealth Bank and ANZ etc you know how come they're coming up as a, a good buy for a value investor? It's being able to sort of go, huh, and step back and go, yeah, but it's the, it's the next thing to buy, so I'm going to buy it. So, yeah, oftentimes I'm surprised by what spits out of the checklist. But, but you know, I still apply the checklist because I know it works over a long period of time. Um, if Alice is interested, a great book on behavioral economics, although it's not about behavioral economics is called Influence by a guy called Robert Cialdini. It's actually about marketing, but what he goes through is five or six, I guess, things that are hardwired into your brain that marketers can use to fool you. And it's things like um, confirmation bias. It's not called confirmation bias and influence, but it's, it's, it's called following the crowd. But it's, you know, Cialdini's example is if you want to look at a quick look at confirmation bias, go and stand out in the busy side work and look up and people will start to go by you and look up as well. And some of them will stop and try 
try and, you know, they'll ask you, what are you looking at? So, you know, that's hardwired in us through evolution to, if you see someone doing something, at least investigate it. And you see it in the share market all the time. Why are people buying Afterpay? Well, because everyone stopped and looked at Afterpay and they're buying it. So, you know, there are probably half a dozen blind spots. They're not blind spots evolutionary. There's good reasons why we do these things. But if you're not aware of them, you can get mugged by them in the crowd. And so Influence is a good book to, to start to, to read about that and to start developing your thinking around it. I'm really shocked to hear that you struggle to sell FMG, Tony. You, you almost sound human there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I shouldn't say struggled. It's again, it's 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 coping with surprise. Right. I actually thought FMG might be a buy and hold stock for a long time, and I was surprised at, at how much the iron ore price dropped and how quickly and that it was a sell and that we had to sell it. So there, there was, I won't call it emotion, but it's coping with that surprise. I, you know, the market's always throwing up curveballs at you, and you've got to have a process to deal with them. Right. Well, there you go. I think that's a nice way to wrap up Tony's FMG, all of our iron ore uh, journeys this year. And I hope you enjoyed that as a bit of a final show for the year, just a bit of a recap on the thought process behind that, the evolution. And uh, I mean, I don't know, going back and listening to that for me tells me a lot of, st- a lot of things um, about the fact that Tony's always learning, always thinking. Uh, that he struggles to follow the process sometimes, as, as the rest of us do, I'm sure. Yet he has the discipline to do it, and I guess the experience over the last 20, 30 years, uh, even though the, the, the process has changed and, and evolved and developed over that time, it's, I guess, the, the discipline of following the process as it is in any particular point in time, knowing that having the discipline of following a process is one of the things that separates very successful investors from amateurs, I guess. So uh, that's it. That's the year from a podcast perspective. Uh, thank you to everybody who's come along on the journey with us this year, the free listeners and the club members. We've got something new and exciting planned for early in the new year, uh, a new a new service that we're going to be putting out. Uh, so anyway, yeah, let's hope that the markets treat us well in 2022. We will certainly uh, do our best to navigate the markets regardless of whether it's up or down or sideways. Hope you're all staying safe from Omicron. Um, I'm stunned walking around Bundaberg watching how few people are actually wearing masks or checking in when they go into places and how few businesses seem to be policing it. But that's uh, country Queensland for you. This is uh, We're in deep into Clive Palmer, One Nation territory here. It's, I always enjoy the drive up here, seeing all of the Clive Palmer One Na- and One Nation billboards the UA party uh, billboards on the way up here. Anyway, uh, stay safe, everyone, and Happy New Year. We'll be back next week. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129271. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. 